Please listen carefully. Welcome to Christians in the Public Square with your hosts, Cole Bennett and Scott Self. Hey, buddy. Hey, buddy. Welcome to another episode of Christians in the Public Square with Scott and Cole. And Scott, let's start again by rehearsing our tenets of, uh, of dialogue. Yeah, we, uh, we think that sacred cows make great barbecue, so we'll scoff at orthodoxy whenever we please. Right. And sometimes sacred cows make delicious barbecue. (laughs) Number two, we will proudly let our flag fly, our flags fly, which means we will vigorously defend our own positions while also listening to the other. And then third is uh, the most important, bros before politicos. We're brothers first and everything else we figure out um, as, as we can. That's right. Today's episode is going to focus on an opinion piece that hit the New York Times at the end of September of 2018, and that seems like a long time ago, but the reason it caught our attention is because, for one thing, it's still very relevant in discussions going on right now in our country, and that have been going on for a long time. Uh, but number two, it seems to be using the same language that we use in our podcast as it gets started. And then it goes down a path that Scott and I will um, take on today. The writer is Timothy Keller, who is, according to the New York Times, the founder of the Redeemer Presbyterian Church in New York. And the title of the piece is How Do Christians Fit Into the Two-Party System? They Don't. That's the title. And I am, the title is fine and provocative, but I am more interested in the very first question of the piece, which is, what should the role of Christians in politics be? That seems, Scott, to be the same question we're asking. I I think it is. And uh, by the way, we have a link to it in the show notes, but um, part of what interests me about the article is, first of all, that it's good to see that discussion happening. As you said, it was in 2018. I'm not sure that the discussion happens that way uh, often enough. Um, where We talked about this last time. Of, of course we should be uh, involved in functions of the state. Of course we should be running for office and voting for Christians to be in office. And of course we should, right. And, and that of course thing is something I think is important to, to criticize. I mean, criticize in the best sense to really investigate and ask, do we really think that? I mean, you might still think that, but it's worth being critical of. And I, look, uh, I think one of the things that the article does really, really well are, is expose some of the the ways in which no political party really matches with Christianity. I'm I'm sensitive to it now. I guess you were sensitive sensitive to it at other times, m- maybe in a heightened way than you are now. I'm it it really comes to my attention frequently that um, I see a number of people who believe that it is their Christian duty to defend certain politicians. Yes, and, and, and so one of, the, uh, one of the ways that Keller puts it in his article is 
pretty close to the beginning uh, where it says one of the errors in thinking that your politics and your faith have to come together is that um, those considering the Christian faith will get the impression that in order to be converted, they need not only to believe in Jesus, but also become members of the fill-in-the-blank party, which is what you're getting at, right? Yeah. And I think, Scott, you have expressed recently, and I'd like you to elaborate, if you will, um, you've expressed recently uh, your dissatisfaction with some of the evangelical movements that try to link appropriate Christian belief with the election of Donald Trump. You want to say anything about that? As a way of getting started, I want to be very careful. Um, my criticism sometimes sounds like um, I'm, acu- I'm criticizing people for voting for Donald Trump um, or for choosing Donald Trump over someone else. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, I think if you believe that I'm criticizing folks for voting for Donald Trump, you're totally missing my point. In fact, it's, it's, I would like for Christians to consider separating their allegiance to Christ from their allegiance to other things. I I think it's serious that we belong to the kingdom first. Uh, forsaking all other things, we belong to the kingdom. We just we just rehearsed this when we talked about our third tenet and the most important tenet. Bros before politicos is not just to be cute. It's the central tenet of what it means to belong to Christ is that you forsake everything else for him and for his church. That and Christ said, unless and I, it's it's slightly hyperbole, but not totally hyperbole. When he says, "Unless you hate your father and mother, you cannot be my disciple." Hmm. Um, everything else is not just subordinated; it is irrelevant. Um, it becomes relevant because we live in a context. Um, so I I always worry. I I always worry when I hear. Um, uh, folks syncretizing their faith and their and their belief system. It's just that right now there are voices and there are leaders within evangelicalism who model this in pretty disgusting ways. Um, I'm not talking about folks who who want to have discussions about policy. I'm not talking about folks who want, I'm talking about folks who pray that Donald Trump's enemies have miscarriages. Right. I, Which actually happened, listeners, if you don't know that. It was in the news recently. Yeah. Right, right Scott? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and what am I what am I going to do with that? Mhm. I'm talking about even not and and that's that's the extreme. But if you don't think that gets in the bloodstream, then you're mistaken. And that's what I want to be careful about. It gets in our bloodstream. It gets in my bloodstream because my first reaction, and it's not the right one, but my first reaction often is to say, no, you're wrong. And to polemically respond, right? Mm-hmm. To polemically react. 
not at not react in the in the compassion that I'm called to react in. So it's it's not only is it um, uh, in the bloodstream of people who might agree with that point of view or who might be who might accidentally swallow some of the warrants, but it gets in my bloodstream too, and it's wrong. It's wrong to put that in the bloodstream, especially the bloodstream of Christianity. I think I think part of your argument too is not just that some people feel this way, but that they are being vociferous about it at this time. Right? They're, they're loudly broadcasting and writing about this in some areas of the evangelical movement. And you and I are both afraid of what non-Christians, especially those who might be considering Christianity, which we think is the, uh, of course, Trump's politics, um, might feel that this represents all Christians. So, as a time we're, at the time we're recording this, this is the week of the impeachment trial in the Senate when he was acquitted. Yes. And then um, the day after the acquittal, or two days after, I guess it was, um, there was the National Prayer Breakfast, which I'd like to someday maybe have a conversation about. <laughs> well, that clearly mixes faith and politics, or at least yeah, ostensibly yeah, does. I, there's already, yeah, I've already, I'm already nervous, right? <laughs> if you've listened to this podcast at all, you know, that's already as concern for me. But anywho, um, there's the National Prayer Breakfast, and I don't n- know specifically why this came up, but Donald Trump Jr. tweeted about Nancy Pelosi, I guess, talking about praying for the president after she ripped up his his speech at the State of the Union. It's been a week. Um, he said, Nancy Pelosi praying for the president, for, for my father, is about as unlikely as Satan walking around quoting scripture. <laughs> Which he does. <laughs> I, yeah, I mean, if you read Matthew chapter 4, <laughs> and, it, and the, the, the layers of irony that exist within that, A, that here's a guy talking about scripture and and satan and he doesn't know what he's talking about and the brazenness with which that or the the brazenness of cynicism that that plays through that the layers and layers and layers of crazy irony and that run through that it is gobsmacking how can you fall for such buffoonery i don't mean buffoonery in a political sense i mean just plain stupidity and bad theater yeah it's bad theater yeah <laughs> at least do a good theater right 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 um right. but i think it's i think it's a perfect microcosm in and of itself it it's meaningless but it's a perfect microcosm for what i feel like is going on a great deal where people are like hey you know hey, that's a good point people this uh you know nancy pelosi is evil and she shouldn't be talking about how she wants to pray for the president uh you know it's because it it, it it gets in the bloodstream uh, instead of saying donald trump jr thanks for playing but that's not what we do you know uh, mm-hmm. We we end up reacting either one way or the other, which is, oh, yeah, no, I believe she could pray for the president or, uh, yeah, she probably doesn't without missing the the buffoonery. Right. About missing what is actually happening to the, our own testimony in the in the context of these this discourse. Go ahead. 
Well, I was going to say, and what do you think if you had to articulate what is happening to our testimony in those moments? I'll tell you what I think is happening is I think we're losing our witness. It's one thing to talk about a prayer breakfast, and I, I'll have that conversation, and I know I'll disagree with people whose discipleship is real, who, uh, who are my brothers and sisters, regardless of whether we agree or disagree. We can argue about policy. But what I think what's being exposed right now is the empty shell of what American Christianity has become. When politicians try to convince the public of their Second Amendment rights by calling them God-given rights, I feel like that's a cynical ploy to use our faith to manipulate us into a particular point of view. But when Christians do it, I, I want to call down fire from heaven. Mm. Uh, I'm not supposed to, but that's what that's my first reaction is this is not this is not who we are. Does it also I'm not saying, sorry, Go ahead. does it does it also apply to any other amendment? If they say our freedom to speech is a God given right, is does that yeah. also okay. And and I know you hear the same thing when we when when folks say something like, you know, we have to take care of the least among us, right? Right. right. It's the same kind of syncretism. Mm-hmm. And I'm less sensitive. To, I got to be honest with you. I'm less sensitive to it. It feels like rhetoric in that moment. And it feels like um, something different when it's things I, I disagree with. But Scott and I have often talked about how we grew up in very different parts of the country. We are roughly the same age. I'm far better looking than Scott. And Scott uh, grew up in central Colorado, mostly, yes. Uh huh. And I grew up in rural East Texas. And so sometimes I'll make a statement about my perception of uh, growing up in the Christian faith. And Scott will shake his head in amazement and say, I can't believe that you've never heard of X, Y, or Z. And I I have to laugh and agree because I didn't hear a lot of X, Y, and Z. But one of the things that has been new to me in my adult life, what, what what I heard growing up sometimes was we should vote for the Republican candidate because the Republican candidate is close, more closely aligned to faith issues, period. What is new to me as an adult is the Republican candidate is someone God put there in order to help rule America a certain way. Can you speak to that? I know, I know one of the things you'll say is that it nauseates you. And I, I, yes, but can you speak to that as a matter of faith and republicanism as you understand it? Yeah. Um, it, and it's something that's come up for us a few times in the podcast as well, hasn't it? You know, the, a few uh, times. The idea that you know there is a party that has, for at least since the late '70s, stood up against abortion, and there's another party that has uh, worked to preserve access to abortion. Mm-hmm. And what oftentimes happens for I think good Christian folk uh, is that they become concerned uh, that abortion is a a sin, and b that a nation that tolerates that sin 
is a wicked nation, and C, we're supposed to be a Christian nation. So it kind of all kind of comes together into a belief that it is our responsibility to ensure that abortion is abolished. You know, we find some way to to uh, so that our laws reflect a um, an awareness of the uh, preciousness of life. And what that sometimes results in is a a kind of fundamentalism. I, that fundamentalism is not what I mean. I don't just mean Bible thumping, although that can be a form of fundamentalism. But fundamentalism is the kind of uh, belief system where um, one has a, a point of view that is they're unwilling to put a lens upon. They're unwilling to criticize. They're unwilling to question. So, so there's that. And part of it, Cole, is not necessarily where I grew up, but my work in ministry where, you know, my mailbox was full of voting guides that I was supposed to pass out to my congregation. <laughs> uh-huh. Uh, this, these are the candidates who are up for election. This is their voting record uh, in Congress about abortion. And so this is who, this is who your congrega- congregation needs to vote for. And so rhetoric that then ties Donald Trump to the party that corrects America's errant ways is, is rhetoric that you hear and have heard for a while. Oh, yeah. It's not yeah. new. Okay. Um, and I think you tend to walk around in a... Uh, Careful. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, I think you walk around in a very thin stream, a very shallow stream of evangelicalism that tends to have more liberal arguments. But mm. I don't think you... I don't think you spend much time in true red-blooded evangelical American churches. That is probably true. And I think that because of your work history, you probably have done that quite a bit more. Um, I, For the last 25 years, I have been a teacher in academia where I'm surrounded by – when I'm surrounded by people of faith, they are often – very left politically. And so I hear a lot of different arguments from what you heard in your work life before now. Is that, is that fair? Yeah, it is fair. Um, yeah, go ahead. Okay. Well, I want to, what we are talking about now, I, I find very interesting, but it, and so it surprised me when the writer of this op-ed said something, he went a direction I was not really it didn't surprise me, but I wasn't prepared for, which is this. He says, um, it gives those considering the Christian faith, and by this I mean linking political parties to faith, gives those considering the Christian faith the strong impression that to be converted, they need not only to believe in Jesus, but also become members of the blank party. The next sentence is, it confirms what many skeptics want to believe about religion, that it is merely one more voting block aiming for power. That is not where I thought he was going to go. And frankly, that is not my biggest concern. And it doesn't sound like it's your biggest concern either. Our biggest concern seems to be it damages the ethos of Christianity to tie it so closely to a political party because people tend to start seeing the faults of politics, which are inherent because politics are a human institution when compared to 
Christ. No, but I but I think that I think his argument is we become if if all we become is a new voting block, then we're not serious in the public square. Our testimony is the witness that we provide to the public square that I think Christ empowered us to provide to the public square has been neutered. We're just another voting block. We're just another constituency that you have to keep happy. And you can keep us happy with platitudes. You can keep us happy with uh, a few scraps here and there. You can keep us happy by showing up to a prayer breakfast. You can keep us happy by claiming to be um, pro-life, even though you don't really do anything about it. You can keep us happy by uh, saying, you know, we need more prayer in schools, which is why? Why do we need more prayer in schools? (laughs) You sound Why don't we have more prayer that? in homes? Let's, yes. let, let's let's start at prayer at home, and then and then we'll figure it out from there. But I don't need a president to to give lip service to prayer in schools. We just become another voting block. We we, we, we become empty suits. Hmm. And no, I think he's making a very important point here, which is if that's all we are, then that has nothing to do with. There's, I don't understand why why Christ's blood is shed for that. Jesus yeah. did not die on a cross so that your kids can publicly pray in school. That is well articulated, my friend. Yeah, I when I when I get nervous about someone saying, "Oh, I guess if I'm going to be a Christian, I need to believe in this party." It's for all the other reasons, but the the fact that it's an empty way to gain voting power is. You're helping me understand. I thought you were going to kind of center on the word power, but no, I understand yeah. what you mean is empty suits. Well, and and I think I do think it starts with um, a misunderstanding of our responsibility in the world. Mm-hmm. The, you know, the reason I don't think we're supposed to be lawmakers in the, in the sense that we're supposed to, in you know, enforce some Christian law is not because I, I mean, listen, I'm, I'm pro-life. And I think he's making another argument I want to come back to when I said I'm pro-life. But I'm pro-life. But I don't believe that uh, we are good at, nor were we, nor did Christ die on the cross so that we could exert power. When... When Yoda and Syntyche aren't getting along in in Philippi, it seems that the context there is you've got two hardworking people who have lost their sense of responsibility to one another. And the way Paul addresses that is he says, have the same mind in you that was in our Lord Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be grasped or exploited but emptied himself. This, that kenosis, that pouring out of oneself, is the opposite of power. He okay. became nothing. He poured himself out to the, and was obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And then Paul says something that's really, really important, for, I think, for Christians to hear. Therefore, God exalted him and gave him the name that is above all names. So, Jesus's example for us and for Yodi and Syntyche so that they can get along and for the rest of us in the public square 
Jesus' example is not to grasp power or to hold on to power, but to pour himself out. That is Christianity. Okay, and I, I think that's wonderful. And I wonder then if we should not go to the very top of the article, because you seem to be arguing with one of his main opening premises, which I marked because I have thoughts about it too. Um, but he, he's saying, you know, you can't really be a Christian and transcend politics. Uh, those who avoid all political discussions and engagement are essentially casting a vote for the status quo. American churches in the early 19th century that did not speak out against slavery because that was what we would now call getting political, in quotes, were mm-hmm. actually supporting slavery by doing so. Um, you have... You have thoughts about that? Is 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 what you just said about the church not engaging in power? Does that argue against his claim? Oh, I, I want to hear from you before I before I. Okay, yeah, I have. I've, I've been talking a lot. Yeah, I have a real problem. It does sound like I'm interrogating you. I'm sorry about that. I I like where Keller goes at the end of the article. I don't like where he starts uh, because. I disagree utterly that if I don't engage in the political system, that I am therefore casting a vote for the status quo. Uh, those That's a false equivalency. And I think it's poignant in his last sentence of that paragraph, which is to not be political is to be political. Well, I think he's being kind of rhetorical there because to not be Capital P political, meaning engaging in Republican, Democrat, and independent parties in the United States of America, is to be little P political in that all people live as a polity and they have to have relationships that they negotiate. Uh, so I agree on the macro scale, but I think he's saying if you sit back, Cole Bennett, and continue just to vote for whatever makes the government smaller and you don't um, occasionally storm the city hall and carry a sign and do things, then you are in effect approving of what's happening. Now, I, I don't believe that. And yeah. I will, I will make reference, if I may, to a book that came out about 20 years ago by Shane Claiborne called Jesus for President. Do you remember that book? Mm-hmm. Okay. And it's, very fascinating reading to me up until about the last fifth of it, because in the first four fifths, as I recall, making great arguments about being a Christian regardless of what's happening and being uh, following Jesus in the face of whatever's there. But in the last bit, when Claiborne gets to the application of his argument, it is a lot of therefore we need to support Public housing, for example, and other government institutions that are enacted by coercion. So I think he upends his own argument. And so I, my belief in small government that leaves me alone so I can do Christianity the way I want to, to me, doesn't mean that I am failing because I'm not out picketing. Do you, I really appreciate the distinction you're making between capital P and, and lowercase p politics or political did I ever tell you the story of my mother-in-law on the bus when she was a kid? No, I want to hear it. So my mother-in-law has passed away, but she was uh, she grew up in Montgomery, <laughs> uh, outside of Montgomery, Alabama. When she was young, 
um, she got on a bus and uh, the, it was a woman that got on, a black woman got on the bus and the bus driver yelled at her for sitting in the wrong seat. And Polly was not um, political with a capital P ever in her life. Mm-hmm. It's not something that she ever paid much attention to. In the moment, however, and keep in mind, this is Montgomery, Alabama, the early part of the 20th century. And she looked at the bus driver and said, sir, are you a Christian? (laughs) They were yelling at the woman for sitting in the wrong seat. Um, We tell our, I I just told my my granddaughters that story over Christmas. I wanted them to know where they come from and who they come from, because it's important to our family that they know uh, that their great-grandmother stood up for what was right. And in that moment, for her, standing up for what's right is calling people to the better angels of their nature in the moment, in life, not in so much in policy, not so much in terms of who's president or who's not president, but it's just in this moment, if you're a Christian, let's talk a little bit about whether this is okay for you to do. You reminded me of a story I'd like to tell. Okay, It's not nearly as sweet as that story, but (laughs) (laughs) my father, who who passed away a while back, um, I would consider to be a good Christian man. He was very quiet. Uh, The word taciturn is what I always use because he had opinions, but he was just didn't speak a lot. And my family uh, had a bakery when I was growing up, and my father and his father before him, we had bakeries. And we were, again, in East Texas, Scott, and in the decade of the 70s in East Texas, there was quite a bit of, um, in the 70s, there was a lot of racial tension, especially in East Texas. And my father's bakery was in a part of town that served people of all colors. He did not tell me this story. My brother did years later. But one day there was a black man outside in the parking lot and his truck stalled and he was trying to start it and trying to start it and trying to start it and it wouldn't start. And a man behind him, a white man in a big car was honking and honking. Well, he gets, the man gets out of his car to approach the black man and starts berating him and implying violence was, Mm -hmm. and my father, (laughs) puts down his baking implements, walks out into the parking lot, and slugs the man in the face and knocked him out cold. (laughs) And walks back into the bakery, and the black man gets his truck started and goes on his way. Well, I'm not recommending to our listeners that (laughs) they use their fists, but in the 1970s, considering my father and his eagerness to stop violence before it starts... That made an impression on me of someone who owned a business that served everyone who walked in and uh, and stood up for what he wanted to stand up for, what he thought was right at a certain time. And you and I have often taught Scott, I'll tell our listeners, Scott and I have not always agreed on what our role might, no, I think we've agreed more, of what our role would have been had we, Scott and Cole, owned a lunch counter in the 1950s. I do not consider our number one goal in the 50s to have made signs and marched with Martin Luther King nearly as much, uh, or 60s, 50s and 60s, 
nearly as much as it would have been to put a big sign in our lunch counter that said, all people welcome, blacks and whites right. and Hispanics and Jews and women and whatever. Blacks welcome. I think we, yeah, I think we have a fable that runs through uh, history and our, our understanding of history, which is to celebrate great women and men who have, who have stood at, at, you know, in these moments of, of historical significance. You know, we think that slavery was um, overcome by John Brown, right? <laughs> right. By his rebellion. Or, you know, we, we think of, you know, the stories that we know and the people that we know uh, that we've heard of that are in our history books. And we assume that it starts with and, and ends with those, with those few people. And it's not true. I don't know if I've talked about it here, but I believe it's Morehouse University uh, uh, once a year has, I believe it's at Morehouse, has a ceremony called the Candlelight Ceremony. And it's to celebrate um, a group of people, they were Quakers, who used to, uh, in the evenings, after slaves were done working in the fields, uh, open the, the doors of their church building in the basement and by the light of candles, teach African-Americans to read. Mm. It wasn't John Brown who started the abolitionist movement. He was a big, loud voice. It was good Christian people who thought, these are also children of God, uh, regardless of what my culture says. Need something, I can provide it. It's a pathway. Literacy was and is a pathway. Well, and they were also obeying the greatest commandment. Yeah, exactly. And so I think if you want to fight for something um, and you belong to Jesus, I think it's pretty clear what you fight for. You fight for love. You fight for mm. compassion. You fight for forgiveness. And you you have that fight within yourself. <laughs> Jesus is pretty insistent that it is not our, even our response, as much as I judge my neighbor, and I judge my neighbor all the time, but I have to be really careful because if I understand anything about what Jesus has to say, it's that judging my neighbor is about the worst thing I can do. We oftentimes look at the Lord's prayer there in, in Matthew and assume that that's some pattern for us to pray. And I think that's fine, but Jesus's own commentary on his prayer is, uh, to have compassion and forgive your neighbor. Mm. The, the parable of the wheat and the tares is it's not your job to figure out who's good, who's bad. It's your job to to love and let judgment happen, let judgment rest with, with the Heavenly Father. And I think what we tend to do is say, yeah, 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 yeah. But, okay, so we're not going to judge. <laughs> now let's start judging again, right? Yeah, yeah. And instead of instead of really looking at what's right in front of me, Who's next to me and how can I love them? And I'll tell you what, uh, I, I fail at this more often than I am comfortable admitting. I'm, it's a struggle for me. But I've seen it happen, and the moments I've seen it happen, I've thought to myself, there is something here, there's something available if we would only grasp on it, onto it. And let me give you a perfect example. Okay. My brother-in-law is having surgery today. He's, he has prostate cancer. Uh, so when we got home from Peru, we stopped. We we stopped by uh, uh, Mobile to see him and and uh, spend some time with him. And 
we just wanted to make sure he was okay and hug his neck because we hadn't seen him in a while. Anyway, so we met for breakfast at the Waffle House. Uh, this is in uh, Bay Minette, a little bit north of, of Mobile. We stopped at a Waffle House and had breakfast uh, with Mark and his family. And after breakfast, we went outside and got to our cars, and we were going to go our separate ways. And so we, we all gathered around and hugged each other and had a prayer. And we prayed for safe travels, but we prayed for Mark and his surgery, and we prayed about a couple other things that had been on our hearts and said, in Jesus' name, amen. And looked up, and there was a heavy-set black woman was standing right next to us, stranger to all of us, standing right next to us. And she said, and in Jesus' name, amen. <laughs> that woman had been standing there praying with us. That is fantastic. I'm telling, I, I, you know, the tears are streaming down my face as I'm describing this. I mean, it was just the most beautiful moment I have ever witnessed. And I thought to myself, what kind of person stops when other people are praying and just prays with them and they don't even know you? Mm-hmm. I'll tell you who does that. Somebody who knows my, my master. That's who does it. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's, that's um, remarkable. I look at that and then I see... I see other people posting on Facebook and I'm like, okay, that thing is the thing I want to be a part of. I don't want to be a part of your Facebook group. I want to be a part of that. Right. I don't want to go to your prayer breakfast. I want to be a part of that prayer breakfast. Yeah, because if you're outside of the Waffle House, that is a prayer breakfast. (laughs) (laughs) You got to have a prayer breakfast for a lot of reasons, in part because you were at Waffle House. That's a real prayer breakfast. Listen, there's something available to us if we would only grasp it. Mm. I keep using that word secret sauce. There's something that we could grab hold of if we would just do it. It has to do with living a a life that really does look like Jesus's. So as we walked away, we were saying, I love you to each other. And of course, that woman was walking to her car and Mark says, Mark pointed her and he says, I love you too. (laughs) Oh, that's so great. <laughs> it's just, I just, in that moment, I thought, here's what we could have had. Yeah. This is what we could have. Well, so Keller ends his argument by saying, so Christians are pushed toward two main options. One is to withdraw and try to be apolitical. The second is to assimilate and fully adopt one party's whole package in order to have a place at the table Neither of these options is valid. And I agree with him there. I think I run the risk as a libertarian of people saying, you're trying to be apolitical. And that's not true. I think um, the small government position is a little p political position that has some irons in the capital P political fire. But I don't think... um, it's apolitical, and nor do I think that the other side, a socialist, for example, is trying to adopt a party's whole package. I don't think that's what you're doing. So I think you and I, uh, I think that Keller would say you both have negotiated a place in the middle, which is better than being at the polar ends, and because it's complicated. You know, I think what a lot of people who post horrible things on Facebook and people who try to uh, justify certain positions of faith in politics, 
don't give enough credence to the fact that it's a very difficult, complex set of decision make of decisions to be made and of and of queries to ask as a Christian negotiates the political field. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think you're right on. I, I think as long as we are going to we talked about this in John Camp's class when we were there. As long as you're going to caricaturize someone, or as as long as you think that this conversation is really easy, if you think that it's if if you're listening to this and you're like, ah, oh, they're they're confused. It's really easy. You should vote for this party because of this policy or these concerns. I'd I'd like to invite you to uh, a different a different way of understanding our role in the world because it's not easy. Um, it's not always, it's not always clear. Listen, it seems pretty obvious to me that God sent his son for the salvation of mankind. And it even seems like Jesus understood his responsibility, uh, you know, throughout the gospels. He understood that that comes at the that comes at the cross, and he's telling his disciples, you know, uh, in in increasingly specific terms, what's about to happen. And yet, at the Garden of Gethsemane, tis midnight, and on Olive's brow, the Master weeps alone, <laughs> mm-hmm. wrestling, struggling, saying, "I don't want to do this thing. If there's any other way, let's have the other way." Mm-hmm. But he says. You know, not my will be done, but thine. If he's wrestling with his, with the way that his uh, life plays out in the world around us, then why shouldn't we be wrestling? Why shouldn't we be asking questions? Why shouldn't we be struggling? Yeah. The certainty with which so many people engage these conversations uh, scares me to death. Yeah. Yeah. Because I don't know how to be certain. I know I know whom I have believed in and persuaded that he is able to keep that which, is, which I've committed. But that's a different conversation than whether I know all the time what is right or I know all the time whom to vote for. And how to use state power to get to enact Christianity. Or whether I should. I mean, yeah, all that's up. All that's up for discussion. Uh, just because I have some some opinions doesn't mean I'm right. <laughs> right. It means I'm wrestling in this where I am at the moment, and I may have to change. I don't. I don't know. <laughs> I'll tell you what's not going to change is my allegiance to Christ. My allegiance is not to an, a policy on abortion. My allegiance is not to a policy on whether somebody gets to put Ten Commandments in the public square or not. My allegiance is not to pub prayer in schools. My allegiance is to one single person, and that's to Jesus. And, and 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 until we get there, I think I think these kind of criticisms are very very valid. Uh, I think they come from some. I think that that the desire to comport with power or to truck with power, I think that gets something on you. <laughs> yeah, I think it's corrupting. You're walking around in a cow pasture, in other words. <laughs> yeah, stuff I'm, gets on your shoes. Yeah, yeah. But that's just an analysis. That's. That's an analysis of where I think causes this stuff to happen. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe maybe it's God's will that um, that we vote for politicians who 
uh, promise us to do something about abortion. I may be wrong, and that may be the most important thing for us to be doing. Let, let me tell you where you're right, is regardless of who's in power and regardless of where the laws on abortion are at a, on a given day, we as Christians should be doing what we can to love people who are trying to decide whether to take the legal option to abort a child or not. Right. Here's the other thing that I know is I don't care who you are. It's wrong. It's it, for, for if you belong to Jesus, and I'm just assuming that if you're listening to this, you belong to Jesus. That's probably too broad an assumption. But if you belong to Jesus, you don't get to talk to your neighbor in nasty ways. Mm. You don't get to say on Facebook whatever you want to say. Mm-hmm. You don't get to talk with people to people without empathy without compassion, without mercy. You don't get to do that stuff. If you belong to the way, you are required to speak with grace, uh, to speak with agape. Righteous indignation, is, I'm, this is something I've been working on for the last few months in my own, in my own work, but I, I, really, I really worry about righteous indignation. A, I'm never sure that as, as you've just heard me say, I'm never sure we're righteous. <laughs> Even if we're indignant. <laughs> Even if we're indignant. I, uh, and I also know that indignation is not, uh, is not what Christ called us to. And so many times people will say something like, well, he drove the, the money changers out of the temple. Uh, okay, well, Jesus has the right to righteous indignation because <laughs> I know he's righteous. Right, correct. But but I'm not sure what you're doing on Facebook is is uh, of equal value, or that you have the same claim to that righteousness. Right. Um, so that's. Um, but I'll close by speaking of Facebook. I'll kind of close with this. Um, I have a a friend. Actually, it's a friend of a friend, but she posted on pa- Facebook uh, after the acquittal of Donald Trump some video that was talking about how God is Trump is God's choice and we need to we need to support him because um, there's there are people out there trying to tear him down because he wants to stand up for prayer in schools and she posted on Facebook if you are saved you need to watch this video okay that makes the point that this author is bringing up yep which is that we have made, these things, tests of faith. Um, who you vote for becomes a test of faith. And if you vote for somebody who um, supports abortion, then you're not really a Christian. You're not re- you don't really belong to, to Christ. Uh, or if you, if you vote uh, for someone who is not going to provide universal health care, you really don't care about your neighbor. We're the people who uh, live agape in the lives of people around us. We're the people who, when we see a group of people uh, praying and worried about their brother-in-law, sneak up and pray alongside them. (laughs) That is such a great story. (laughs) I'm glad that that is, I believe and am persuaded that that is a much better representative of what Christian behavior should be than how we vote. Yeah. Amen. You know, we're going to vote. I mean, I'm guessing most of us are going to vote. And and that's the other part of this is let's... Let's be careful to just, you know, not everyone who who votes for a Democrat 
that doesn't mean that they're necessarily want a, a free abortions for everybody. Mm-hmm. Not everyone who votes Republican, you know, hates immigrants. Not everyone who votes Libertarian wants anarchy. <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I hear you. And, and if, if we could just be careful there, I think, I think it'd start to get easier. Uh, but, yeah. The article is entitled, How Do Christians Fit Into the Two-Party System? They Don't, by Timothy Keller. New York Times, September 29th, 2018. If you have thoughts on this article, listeners, we'd love to hear from you. Scott, thank you. See you, you. buddy. See you, buddy.